October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. All right, welcome back to the Adventist History Podcast. This episode is entitled The Wall. Last time we ended our 10-part series on the color line by talking about the case for black unions throughout the 1970s. In this episode, we're going to be taking a step back, just to maybe a half step back. We're going to take a broader look at the issues of the mid-1970s, which is going to set up some future episodes for us. Now, this was an age of committees. There's a committee for just about everything as the church began to re-articulate what it believes. Though we won't cover it in this episode, this re-articulation through these committees would culminate in the 27 Fundamental Beliefs, which would be officially adopted in 1980. So, the mid-1970s saw General Conference President Robert H. Pearson at the top of his game. Professionally, the Geoscience Research Institute seemed to be finally on track in promoting creationism, Several professors Pearson had found or suspected of being too liberal had been removed from their positions at Andrews University, and so, well, things seemed to be going well. Personally, Pearson had adjusted his own life to fit the role of General Conference President. He woke up between 4 and 5 a.m. every day, working about 12 hours, six days or so a week. Pearson spent the first hour doing his devotions. He used the next half hour to plan his day. Writing, he said, was his only hobby. Because he spoke around the world, Pearson kept meticulous records of his sermons and children's stories. If he preached somewhere around the world, he wrote it down in his book in red. Otherwise, he wrote the title, date, and place in another color. He also carried outlines for 60 sermons in his Bible, a Bible famous for having been lost for 13 years, lost in America in customs as he was exiting the country, and somehow turning up in the possession of a lawyer in Pretoria, South Africa, over a decade later. And while Pearson affirmed the importance of family, he admitted that he didn't go home for lunch, and that he would often work right up until bedtime around 10 o'clock p.m., Pearson dreamed, if he ever had time to dream, of a general conference session in Europe. It was a dream that didn't make a whole lot of sense in reality. After all, the general conference office was in America, so the planners of the GC session were going to have to take several trips to Europe rather than, say, Atlantic City, just up the coast, as they had done in 1970. Europe, then and now, doesn't have many facilities large enough to house the number of people who would converge on a GC session. You get the idea. It was difficult, but it was the dream. But there were compelling reasons to try and have a session in Europe. It was a demonstration of the church's international power, as if to say, we can have this meeting anywhere in the world and thousands of people will come. And as Pearson would say in his opening report at that session, quote, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is not an American church, it is a world church, end quote. It was also a bid to draw Adventists from communist nations in Eastern Europe. Party bosses seldom let Adventists travel to America to attend the GC session, but as it turned out, they were far more willing to let them attend a session if it was in Europe. 
When the delegates from the Soviet Union were introduced at this European GC session, there was a standing ovation. Finally, a session in Europe offered Adventist members a chance to get that unique GC experience, meeting church leaders, famous evangelists, beloved authors, editors, missionaries, and old friends. If you've ever been to a general conference session, then you know what that's like. It is a huge social event in addition to church business. It's a networking event. It's a resource event when you get to, to find uh, the latest books and whatever it is that you're looking for. It's just everything is there. And being able to offer that to members in Europe who might otherwise not be able to travel to America for a session was a plus to Pearson. So Vienna was chosen in part due to the Stadthalle and the sufficient hotels and hostels around it. I'm positive that the fact that the Beatles played there around the time that Adventists were choosing a location had absolutely nothing to do with it. I see you, secret Beatles fans in the general conference. Your secret is safe with me. Pearson was at the top of his game in the mid-1970s, as I said. At the session, of course, there's always the possibility that the nominating committee is going to choose a new chief to lead the church, but that possibility was very, very slim in 1975. One editor at the session put it this way, quote, when a team has a winning record, you don't fire the coach, end quote. The treasurer reported that ever since the church was officially formed in 1863, they had received $2.4 billion in tithes. So in a 112 years? Now, take that number with a huge grain of salt. I don't know if they adjusted for inflation, okay, or how exactly they calculated that. In the past five years, however, from 19, it's really 1970 to 1974, they had received over $800 million in tithe. To put it another way, if I'm reading this right, one-third of the tithe that the Adventist church had ever received from 1863 to 1975 had been received in the past five years. Again, I don't think that's adjusting for inflation. When you view adjust for inflation, you know, a dollar in 1863 goes a lot further than a dollar in 1970, then it probably wouldn't be true. But just the way they presented the numbers... $2.4 billion that the church has collected in tithes since 1863, and $800 million of that, basically one-third of it, had been collected in the last five years. And that's not including, by the way, the other $162 million the church received from mission offerings in that quinquennium, and it's not counting the income from Harris Pine Mills, which was a lumber business given to the church in 1951-ish, and which had brought in many more, many more millions of dollars for the church. So why on earth would you fire the coach? Church membership, as you've come to expect, was also exploding. Nearly one out of three Adventists lived in Latin America. The South American division, get this, this is crazy to me, the South American division was essentially planting a church of a hundred members every single day. A church of a hundred members every day. And nearly a quarter of the church lived in Africa by this time. So if you were to enter Vienna's Stadthalle during the 1975 General Conference session, you would come face to face with the Globe. The Globe was a recent feature of past general conference sessions, having debuted at the 1950 session in San Francisco, 
built by a Pacific Press maintenance man. It was wired with colored lights to show where various schools, mission stations, and offices were located to impress you with how global Adventism was. The globe was a milestone, not just because of its visual representation of Adventism spread around the world, but also because people didn't know their way around Vienna. <laughs> so it was very common to be like, I'll meet you at the globe. Of course, once the American Adventists wandered outside, they encountered European pricing. As Lawrence Maxwell of that famous Maxwell clan dryly noted, quote, I think we all look forward to taking many lovely things home with us. We now know we can't afford to. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> My brother, we've all felt that way. It was a typical Adventist General Conference session, where, as one non-Adventist journalist put it, Adventist enthusiasm and joy de vivre permeated everything. End quote. You know, you guys are making me say some French and German words, and I know I'm butchering them, so be kind to me. The bureaucratic... Structures were well-oiled and organized. All of the glowing reports of growth and expansion were like warm milk to a cat. I mean, you could attend this thing, hear all these numbers. A third of our members are here. A quarter of our members are here. We, we're planning a, you know, a new hundred-member church in South America every day. The, the, the income is incredible. You could just lap all of that up and go to sleep, right? But this session as well as a few years on either side of it. So I mean this session and also kind of the surrounding years. It was a profound pivot point in Adventist history because both the tone and the agenda were set for the church's relationship to a range of issues Adventists are still addressing today. That's rather vague, so let me explain. But before I do that, I, I, I want to kind of situate this thing we're talking about in a wider historical context. So part of the joy and the responsibility of dealing with Adventist history in the 1970s is trying to understand why the modern church is the way that it is. Now that's true also for when you talk about the 1880s or 1840s or 19-teens, right? All of that is influential in shaping the modern church. But of course, the more recent history, the history that our, we or our parents have lived through, that is uh, I don't know, maybe a, more directly influential in the Adventism that you, if you're an Adventist, have been experiencing or grew up with or whatever, okay? So when we deal with this, we're trying to understand why the church is the way that it is. And again, that was rather vague. You know, how did the 1975 GC session and the years surrounding it really set the tone and agenda for the church's relationship to a range of issues? Okay, so here we go. Let's start with President Pearson's report to the session. He offered his familiar refrain, something we've covered in, these, in this podcast before. He wants to root out liberalism. He says, and I quote, in a world of change, God's remnant church must keep on course. The change of worldly mores, the slide to a liberal theology more comfortable to the carnal heart on the part of too many Christian churches about us, must not undermine those pillars of truth that have sustained our heaven-built temple of present truth. End quote. Okay? So in his worldview, and of course in the worldview of many, many others, the world is changing and becoming more liberal, including the, the churches that are in the neighborhood of Adventism. 
they always like to point the finger at Methodism in particular, they're becoming more liberal, and we should not be following after them. All right. Now, it also sounds like in the beginning of that quote that the Adventist church shouldn't be changing. In a world of change, God's remnant church must keep on course. In other words, the world can change. We're not going to change. We're just going to keep heading in the same direction we've always headed in. Okay, but Pearson did acknowledge that the church couldn't just stick its, its head in the sand. And he added, quote, Yet we must not ignore the changing times in which we live. Truth need have no fear of being tested. Hence, in-depth study groups have reviewed again our church positions on such areas of current concern as labor unions, religious liberty, divorce and remarriage, adornment, jewelry, music in the church, recreation, athletics, drama, social activities, and goals and objectives of our institutions. In these matters, we have reaffirmed the soundness of our past position in today's sophisticated world. The principles of truth laid down by inspiration decades ago have not become outmoded. They stand fast. End quote. Pearson was saying, People are questioning our positions on these issues, or at least some of our positions in this modern world seem antiquated. So we have re-examined them because we're not afraid of their questions. We formed study groups to take another look at, I mean, just all those topics he gave, divorce, adornment, jewelry, music, recreation, drama. I mean, all of these things, the goals and objectives of our institutions. He's, he's almost saying we've re-examined everything. We formed study groups to just... Look at everything we do and believe and see if we're still standing on a firm foundation. And wouldn't you know it, on every topic, we've concluded that our positions are still solid, even if they aren't fashionable. Now, no one, of course, would expect the church to suddenly change their mind on these issues. No one's going to say, no one expected Pearson to say, we set up study groups on all these issues, and wouldn't you know it, we found we were wrong on a couple things. All right. What's interesting, however, is that Pearson nevertheless formed these study groups to examine these issues. He didn't have to. He could have said, we're not going to look at our positions on divorce and remarriage because we know what we believe is biblical. So what's the point of even studying it? Why waste the money and the time to look at these issues? Well, the cynic might say, all of this was just a charade of open-mindedness. Right? The committees were never going to change anything, challenge anything. So it was just to, to, to give Pearson the ability to say, well, hey, we studied it, and there's no reason to change. Okay, that's what the cynic might say. The true believer might say it demonstrates the church's openness to change, even if no change resulted from the process. All right? Hey, we considered change. We, we looked at what we believed. We just didn't have any reason to change. I don't think... The true believer nor the cynic are entirely correct here. On the issue of jewelry, the GC committee said, quote, There is increasing demand, primarily in the North American division, for clarification and restatement of the Seventh-day Adventist Church's position in the use of rings and other jewelry and ornamentation as improper forms of personal adornment, end quote. So this committee, and I think likely the others, saw their role not as a let's restudy this issue and see if we're still right, but is offering clarification and restatement of the issue. The committee didn't form in order to, to reconsider the church's stand on these issues. They formed in order to figure out how can we 
explain what we believe to modern people better. Now, this doesn't mean that these groups were not taken seriously. The Jewelry Committee, for instance, had 29 members, including Neil Wilson as chair, and it had a triumvirate of African-American luminaries like Charles Bradford, E.E. E. Cleveland, C.D. Brooks, as well as famous evangelist Fortis Dedimore and review editor Ken Wood and his wife. So, I mean, you put a lot of firepower on this committee. You, If, if it was just a throwaway committee, a waste of time, you know, just a, a pageant, as the cynic might say, then I don't think you put these names on this committee. I think you just fill it with people most people have never heard of, have them go through the motions and close it. All right. But by putting these names on a committee, and by the way, this is still this is still a thing. If you want to find out if the church is taking something seriously, you look at who's on the committee. I'm not saying it always means something big is going to happen. I'm just saying if the person or the group forming the committee has put some high power people, some visible people, talented people, then then you take it seriously. If there's a if we're going to form a committee of, I don't know, re-examine our interpretation of Revelation or something, and I put people who don't know Greek and don't really know Revelation, they're not experts in it. If I put if I put them on the committee and not actual Revelation scholars, then you know, you know, it's not serious. But if you see a Revelation committee with John Pauline and Ranko Stefanovic and you know whoever, like people who are Revelation scholars, then you know this is there's at least a serious attempt being made here that that the committee is important. So anyways, this was an important committee. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Not that they had the agenda to change anything or to really reconsider anything, but this was they they wanted uh, a diverse committee of important influential people. And even if the goal was just to restate or clarify the Adventist position on jewelry, they wanted people who were influential to be a part of crafting what that statement was. Perhaps so, these influential people would go back to the institutions or organizations they serve in and be able to explain it to their constituents. I don't, I don't know what the reason was, but this was a serious committee. Now, these study groups established the issues of the day as church leaders saw them. I mean, you, you heard the list, divorce, jewelry, women in leadership, music in the church, liberal theology, competitive athletics, abortion, by the way, was one of them, and all the rest Pearson mentioned at the GC session in Vienna. A few of these issues were new in the 1970s. Church leaders made it clear that most of these were the historic position of the church. Yet, by the very act of restating these positions and linking them together, this is very important, Pearson set the tone and the agenda of the church for decades to come. Which is why many Adventists today find that when they advocate for a change on one of these topics, they are often met with the objection that once you change our position on one of these topics, it's a slippery slope towards changing all of them. Or to put it another way, the linking of these issues together formed a wall to keep out everything that might threaten the Seventh-day Adventist church. As Pearson put it, you will recall, the slide to a liberal theology must not undermine the, those pillars of truth that have sustained our heaven-built temple of present truth. The, the word truth is in there a lot. But as he is visualizing it in that statement, the Adventist church is upheld, it's a building, a structure, whatever, upheld by pillars. And the slide to a liberal theology begins to undermine not just one of those pillars, but multiple pillars, pillars plural, 
Other churches are giving into this slide to a liberal theology, and we must be vigilant about denying liberalism the opportunity to undermine all of these avenues pillars of truth. Pillars support the building. And if you're asking yourself, how many pillars can we lose before the whole thing comes crashing down? Well, you're asking the wrong question, right? None. Because if you don't let one fall, then you don't have to worry about it. Now, I'm not saying that the General Conference Church or its members would articulate their position on these issues exactly as it was articulated in the 1970s. And on, what I'm saying is the agenda for the conversation in, I can only speak for the Adventism I experience, but for the Adventism I experience here in the Western world, that agenda was set in the 1970s. So many of the things Adventists talk about today Yes, they still talk about jewelry. I mean, it's it's still a thing that gets talked about, even if it isn't uh, is is widespread. I mean, the church has softened on jewelry, not officially, but members, I should say, have softened on jewelry since then. But the point is, the conversations that get had, whether it's about women's ordination, again, that stems from the 1970s, whether it is about jewelry, still stemming from the 1970s, about whether schools should have competitive sports, again. You know, this was this was all articulated in the 1970s, and so much of the Avenist conversation that happens today on different issues has its roots in the 1970s. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that Pearson or the church invented the Avenist position on these topics. What I'm saying is, here in the mid-1970s, he strung these issues together as a wall. So jewelry and women's place in the church and dress and athletics and whatever else like he 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 brought them all together so that these could not be really they couldn't be dealt with as individual issues if you were seen chipping away at one of them or saying let's reconsider this issue or we should restudy this issue for Pearson and his the people the Avenists who thought and believed like him you're you're trying to take down the whole wall and you're a threat that's what I'm trying to say here, is that he these issues predated him. Many of these issues predated him. But what he did was link them together as a wall and said, if we man this wall, we will keep liberalism out. It was an existential survival of the Adventist church. We need to keep this wall strong in order to survive. I also don't want to give the impression that Seventh-day Adventists haven't changed since 1975 on these issues. Um, as I said, many Western Adventists have softened their position on nearly all of these topics. I mean, many Adventists wear jewelry. They sing worship music in church that might have mortified Pearson. And even, you know, otherwise conservative members divorce and remarry in circumstances that would never have been acceptable to church leaders in the 1970s. Okay, I'm not saying there hasn't been movement on these issues. What I'm saying is that Pearson's wall is, is still standing. It's still the basic framework for these issues we discuss. We're either agreeing with it, modifying it, or reacting against it. But the wall is still there. Yes, it has holes in it. Ladders have been built to get people over it. Tunnels have been dug to get people under it. But the wall still remains as the fundamental way many, if not most, Adventists around the world, including many church leaders, still view the world. We have to man the wall in order to protect the church. If anything, the many breaches in the wall 
have only shown that Pearson was right, right? Like liberalism got in, the pillars are falling. That's why the church hasn't grown as much. This is how these things are seen. Okay, I'm not saying I agree with it or disagree with it. Just saying that's how it's seen. It's why Adventists aren't as mission-minded. That's why they don't give financially like they used to. So there's been breaches in the wall, and then suddenly baptisms are down, giving is down, mission work. I mean, we don't have, we don't send as many missionaries um, like we used to as a Seventh Day Adventist. And you know, does it, in in the minds of people today, long after Pearson, who understand what he was trying to get at in building this wall, they say, "See, this is why we needed the wall." There's been breaches in the wall. Many Adventists have gone and just done their own thing. And as a result, all these glowing successes you heard about from GC session to GC session for decades and decades and decades have now come to a halt. In some parts of the world, we're happy to grow at all, let alone growing by hundreds of thousands every quinquennium, every meeting. Pearson essentially said, we need to hold our ground on these issues to keep the corrosive, corrupting spirit of liberalism out of the church. And at some point, many Adventists said, nah, and let the wall fall into disrepair here and there. And other Adventists, like the Night's Watch, saw those Adventists and labeled them traitors and vowed to redouble their efforts to rebuild and reman the wall, whether an Adventist defends or destroys the wall. The wall still dominates Seventh-day Adventism. And when people take a stand for or against, as I said, female ordination as pastors in the church today, they are taking a stand on an issue set, articulated by Robert H. Pearson in his administration. Now, Pearson didn't just identify the issues which subsequent generations would discuss and debate. He set the tone for this discussion. He characterized this slide to liberal theology as a battle for the future, for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist church. If the church gives in, it's effectively over. Yeah, the organization may live on, but the mission is over. The dream is over. So these aren't issues you can really just take a fresh look on, right? Like, well, let's just re-examine jewelry. Maybe we were wrong. The, the Adventists can't open their Bibles and revisit these topics and say, hey, we've learned a lot in 100 years. Let's see if our interpretation of these texts is still correct, because there's, 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 there's a little room for flexibility in some of these topics, but it was nevertheless a—it's just a negotiation of whether the wall needs to move a few feet forwards or backwards. There's never any option that a section of the wall is going to be removed because of what it provides people which is a sense of security, which is a sense of security. If the wall stands, how dare you tinker around with it and figure out, hmm, you know, I don't know if this section, if we should even have this section. How can you even think about taking out a section of the wall when we're under attack? And we're always under attack. Liberalism is all around us. We can't afford to study <laughs> and, and, and figure out, and maybe we might be wrong with this section of the wall and we should tear it down. It's just not even an option. It's, it's treasonous to even suggest that, okay? Now I'm oversimplifying, and I hope you understand what I'm trying to say here. I'm just trying to explain to you how I see Pearson's contribution in the mid-1970s. He formed all these committees to study all of these issues, not to re-examine them, 
not to find out where we might need to be where, where we might be wrong and and to you know admit that he studied them as a way of kind of building the wall like i'm going to take all of these issues from abortion to music to women to jewelry and we're going to re-articulate our position on every issue now you know very clearly where the church stands on everything all at once like within a few years of each other all these committees were meeting and it was a way of of building a wall now you know where the church stands where do you stand are you on the inside of the wall helping us or are you on the outside of the wall besieging us you can only be in one position or the other and this is and and, and i want to say this contributed to this modern avenus mindset where even the most quote-unquote progressive Adventists are still reacting to the wall. You know, they really haven't progressed much beyond it. We're still dealing with the wall. So let's conclude the episode and conclude as a... It's like a pastor saying the sermon's almost over. You know it's not almost over, but this is the last section here. Uh, I'm going to conclude by surveying the wall. All of these topics could be future episodes, and one or two of them will be. And, well, let's mix up my metaphors. We're walking down the hall here. We're going to poke our head in a few of these rooms, and we're going to have to resist the temptation to accept the invitation made famous by Deckard Kane to stay a while and listen. We simply have too many rooms to visit or to get back to the wall. It's too long. We can't stop and look at every stone. So we're just going to look at a few of these issues, uh, that a few of these sections of the wall. And let's start with jewelry because we've already talked about jewelry. Now, the committee I mentioned as being led by Neil Wilson issued a statement making it clear that Adventists shouldn't wear jewelry. Why? Well, the first issue was a personal adornment, which was seen as prideful or at least a violation of the principles of modesty and humility and simplicity, which should characterize Christians. There was also an economic issue, as gold and diamonds were expensive, yet Coco Chanel had pontificated that fake or costume jewelry was just fine. She said, quote, the point isn't to make a woman look rich, but to adorn her, not the same thing, end quote. I'm not sure if that was a distinction that church leaders came to appreciate. I'm not sure how much they, they read of the wisdom of Coco Chanel, but what can you say? An English Adventist visiting America clicked his tongue at his American cousins for apparently wearing this costume jewelry, but it's hard to say how prevalent the custom might have been. You have to understand, whenever we talk about official church positions on things, there are people are people are just interesting creatures, okay? <laughs> you will always have people who, you know, they might be last-generation theology, they might be as conservative as you can be, and and still may quietly divorce their spouse and remarry, you know, in a way that would not be acceptable in the church. And you may have open-minded people on the other side of things who are open-minded and say the church needs to open up, and yet on some issues are entirely closed-minded. People are diverse. People are complex. That's what I'm trying to say. So even though you have all this anti-jewelry stuff, the fact that a bunch of, uh, well, this English Adventist came and found a bunch of Americans wearing cheap costume jewelry, not surprising. Doesn't mean they were they were heretics. I almost said doesn't mean they weren't hypocrites. Well, they may have been, but they weren't necessarily heretics. They may have been good Adventists in every other way, but people are complex. Pastors were told to make sure baptismal candidates understood that good Adventists don't wear jewelry. 
tip your hat if you're a pastor and ever have that conversation as you prepare someone for baptism. A discussion of wedding rings, by the way, was strangely absent from the committee statement, but other articles written in this time made it clear that they were viewed with the utmost suspicion. Yes, 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 Ellen White had tolerated wedding rings when worn in cultures where not wearing a wedding ring would cause a scandal. It's kind of an offhand comment she made once to her son, but this apparent loophole should be closely and suspiciously guarded because this committee understood... I shouldn't say just this committee. Avenus authors who were writing about wedding rings during this time understood that this was a loophole that people would want to exploit. (laughs) So, yes, technically there was a loophole for wearing wedding rings, but um, people were reminded insistently that there's some very specific criteria when Ellen White said that that was okay. D.A. Delafield, who was at the Ellen White Estate, published a 100-page book titled What's in Your Clothes Closet, to which one Adventist published a rebuttal, None of Your Business. I'm just kidding. That would have been funny, though. Um, Anyways, Delafield's 100-page booklet sought to set the record straight. Neil Wilson, in endorsing the book, introduced it by asking, quote, When the Lord takes his saints to heaven, will they go sweeping through the gates of the New Jerusalem dressed in miniskirts? End quote. (laughs) you know, pertinent question. Wilson insisted that the book didn't hammer away on the subject, but simply presented the truth as it was in Jesus. Nevertheless, he warned, don't expect that this book will lower any standards. It will elevate them. Okay. In particular, Wilson recommended the chapter on the wedding ring. One woman in California felt the principles of economy and simplicity being applied to jewelry weren't being applied elsewhere you heard this one before. In a letter to the review, she wrote, quote, many thinking members and non-members are confused by the values of people who strain at the gnat of wedding rings, while so many spend thousands of dollars on unnecessary and ornate furniture, cars, boats, houses, clothes, and whatever, end quote. Well... The part I find personally amusing is that ministries like Faith for Today and local conferences routinely invited members to send in their jewelry as offerings. One such appeal tactfully called it your old gold, because, you know, if Adventists had any jewelry to send in, it would be from the time before they were Adventist. And yet, the Lake Union Herald reported that, quote, jewelry comes in frequently enough that the conference has a good channel for sale, end quote. While the church was certainly baptizing enough people that all of this jewelry being donated to the church could have been from new members who were giving it up, but I suspect there were other members who would buy jewelry, maybe wear it for a while, become convicted somewhere along the way to turn it in, and there you go. I don't know of any data on how much jewelry was donated during this decade, but it makes me wonder if the Seventh-day Adventist Church was one of the bigger jewelry dealers in North America. So, there we go. (laughs) Don't wear it but sell it. Anyways, it makes sense from their perspective. What else are they going to do with it? They're just going to pawn shop it or something and keep the money. So the church has said, hey, if you feel convicted to get rid of your jewelry, send it in to us. We'll liquidate it for you and write you a tax-deductible receipt. All right, let's move on and talk about women next. According to an eyewitness, one of the few contentious votes at the 1975 GC session concerned what to do with members who sued the church. And I wonder what that could be about. Hmm. <laughs> of course, it just so happens that 
One such member who sued the church was a female employee of the Pacific Press Publishing Association named Mary Kay Silver. Now, Mary Kay was first known to me and likely many others through the short booklet she authored when she was a student at Grand Ledge Academy, a work of end-time fiction called Now. I have it in my library, the one I read as a teenager. It was a captivating account of an Avenus end time scenario, and if we're honest, it scared the wits out of us. <laughs> now, a famous evangelist I talked about, Fortis Dedimore, began selling the book for her when he found out. Sold over a hundred thousand copies in five years. My friends, if you have ever written a book for the Avenus Church, and I, I hope you can appreciate what it means to sell 100,000 copies of something, all right? You're lucky if you sell 5,000, 10,000 these days, but 100,000 copies in five years. Now, of course, it wasn't a big book. It was a tract, so it was easy to buy lots of them. A young man in Seattle named Kim Silver actually read the book, reached out to her, and this led to their getting married, her becoming Mary Kay Silver. The book also helped her get a job at Pacific Press because here's an accomplished author, even though she didn't complete college. So fast forward, Mary Kay's time at Pacific Press was an absolute mess. I mean, just a, a horrifying, horrifying train wreck. As she tells the story, she was hired as an assistant book editor out of college before she finished her degree. The man who hired her, Richard Utt, assured her it all be fine, except it wasn't. Someone waved a red flag about it because Richard Utt had apparently gone around the office saying, we need to hire college graduates, people who are actually trained to do what we're trying to do here, because Ut wanted to elevate the the the, uh, the the manuscripts that they were receiving. They wanted to publish good stuff, better stuff. He wanted to challenge the writers to send, to write better. He wanted to challenge the editors to edit better. He wanted to see Pacific Press do better. And so here he is making an exception to his own rule. And and when people found out, you know. They said, fine, you can keep her, but only as an editorial assistant, not as an assistant book editor. And she was paid accordingly. But she was still doing the work of an assistant book editor. But officially, her title was editorial assistant. So now, the apartment she just got on the salary of an assistant book editor, thinking she would make as much as her predecessor, was completely unaffordable. In fact, her colleague, who was doing the same job as her, was paid twice as much as she was. Sure, he had been doing it a bit longer, but twice as much? Now, the Adventist Church had what they called a head of household pay policy. Basically, if your wage uh, is the primary support for your family, then you get paid a little more, and you get some better benefits that include insurance, housing allowance, mileage, telephone, more. Okay, it wasn't astronomical, but it was significant to, to get that head of household pay policy. And Mary Kay Silver, when she applied for it, was told she didn't qualify, even though the GC had a position that men and women can qualify for it. Her student, her husband, excuse me, was a student at the time. She was supporting him. When she asked for it, she was told, quote, times may be a changing, but the husband is still the head of the house. He should be supporting you, end quote. Long story made shorter, Mary Kay didn't get the head of household policy. She was given a title that paid less than the work she was doing. And you can already guess how that's going to go. She hired a lawyer to pressure Pacific Press to fix it. You know, one of those letters the lawyer sends saying, hey, we see what's going on here. Please fix it or else. 
That silver case, well, it was eventually settled, 1978, though other suits were brought against the Pacific Press. The year before, the Adventist Church paid $650,000 to settle a lawsuit alleging that they had similarly discriminated against female teachers in the Pacific Union Conference. The church had insisted both that they valued women as equal to men and that they had the paternal right to decide who qualified for the head of household policy. One of Silver's co-workers and allies, Lorna Tobler, had her German-speaking husband transferred from the press, where he was editing a German-language uh, paper. He was transferred from Pacific Press, from California, to Germany, and the expectation, it seems, was that Lorna would obviously have to follow her husband. And so, you know, Mary Kay Silver's ally here would no longer be a thorn in the side of Pacific Press. When Lorna didn't transfer to Germany with her husband, she was terminated, she was told, and I'm going to put that word in quotes, because that's the meaning of that word meant different things to different people. All right. She was told she was being terminated so that she could rejoin her husband in Germany. She said she didn't want to go to Germany, <laughs> so she filed the suit, claiming that the transfer of her husband and her own termination was retaliation for her support of Mary Kay Silver. Okay, it was a mess. It was a mess. And I don't know if today we even know the whole story, because Richard Ott wrote his account of it in 1988, I want to say he published it, self-published an account of, from his side of the story, Mary Kay published her side of the story, and I'm not sure anybody knows the full story. And if you happen to know the full story, let me know. Anyways, at the GC session 1975, Neil Wilson observed that 1975 was declared to be International Women's Year by the United Nations, which had belatedly adopted it after having been celebrated in communist nations after Vladimir Lenin first established an, a Women's Day in, uh, in 1917. So 1975 was going to be an International Women's Year. Subsequently, an International Women's Day would be affixed to our calendars. So thank you, Lenin, for that. In celebrating women, however, Neil naturally pointed to Ellen White as an example of what God could do with, quote, the weakest of the weak, end quote. A backhanded compliment, if ever there was one. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't mean it that way, but there's a long history of that weakest of the weak phrase. And you can check out Kevin Burton's article for Spectrum, where he uh, talks about that. He published it some years back. Anyways, the delegates at the 1975 GC session did elect a woman as a GC department head, and thus returning a woman to a major GC role for the first time since, I believe, 1917. A reporter from Christianity Today observed that a British delegate, quote, drew applause in suggesting that it was not enough to pay lip service to the contribution of women and indicated his dissatisfaction that the church did not ordain women, end quote. The reporter, doing a little math, also noted that the session planners had ignored the 60th anniversary of Ellen White's death. Chagrined at this oversight, a paragraph acknowledging this was slipped into the GC bulletin. Adventist leaders weren't as dismissive over women in leadership roles as they were with jewelry. There was, there was more open-mindedness. It, it opened the door for a little grumbling from more conservative members. Just before the GC session, the 1975 spring meeting voted to allow the ordination of women as elders with, quote, the greatest discretion and caution, end quote. That's a ringing endorsement there. 
Of course, many Avenists were deeply concerned about the sexual revolution and feminism, or women's liberation, as they might have called it back then. Naturally, Miriam Wood, an accomplished author and wife of the review editor, was chosen to publish her view of the efforts for women's liberation. Miriam Wood clearly believed that a stay-at-home mother was a high calling and felt that women's liberation was threatening that. She scoffed at a world that forced women to work in order to make ends meet. However, Wood was clear that if a woman chooses to work outside the home, then she should be judged on her merits, not on her gender, and she should be paid the same as her male colleagues. Hey, Mary Kay. Miriam Wood clearly felt some frustration over this issue. Quote, Denominationally speaking, every time I hear a church leader worriedly exclaim, we're understaffed. We just must add another man to our department. I suffer from an almost irresistible urge to retort coldly, have you ever thought of adding another person? End quote. Nevertheless, Miriam decried the women walking around without bras or those who take on what she considered an abrasive, loud demeanor. Miriam Wood made it clear that she did indeed believe in gender roles. Quote, the man is the natural head of the home, the appointed leader, and the woman the follower. My own clear conviction is that married happiness could not be obtained in any other way. I, for one, should feel highly reluctant to join my life with that of a man whom I could, for want of a better word, boss. Maneuver, maybe, but not boss. End quote. <laughs> as traditional as Miriam Wood was on the issue of gender roles, she had little patience for gender pay discrimination in the church. Quote, the time is overdue for someone to speak out against this bias in our own church. It has existed so long and has come to be so accepted that it now seems in the eyes of many as a divinely ordained state of affairs. But why are our Seventh-day Adventist male leaders so insecure, so mediocre, yet so grossly convinced of their own superiority that they cannot accept women as equals? End quote. Miriam cited as an example uh, her time at another general conference session where a group of women were doing their thing on the platform and a minister was sitting next to Miriam and remarked that those single women were trying to rise above their station. Miriam wrote, quote, like a homing pigeon, he zeroed in with the same masculine superiority which has been used to put down women ever since Eve, end quote. She railed against the reality that despite making up most of the church, no women had sat on the nominating committee at the last GC session. Now, these later quotes come from Wood's participation in the role of women in the church committee that met in Camp Mohaven in 1973. The church continued to study the issue, forming a role of women study group that met in 1975, and really it's an issue that's never stopped being talked about. Women's liberation was a topic of constant consideration throughout the 1970s, and I just can't do the whole thing justice here, but I think Miriam Wood and Mary Kay Silver represented two women who saw injustice in the church handled it in different ways. Mary Kay represented the younger person who refused to wait for the church to finally get their act together. She wanted justice. She wanted it now. Miriam could be no less passionate about getting justice for women, but with her position and years of service in the church, elected to try and change things more diplomatically. And this topic is going to get its own future episode, so don't worry. Just wonder what your appetite I will close with this. Robert H. Pearson was asked about ordaining women at the GC session, and his diplomatic reply was, quote, 
We do not wish to take this step until we are very sure, but discussions are going on at present. Because this is a world church, we want to move forward in unity, and not all parts of the earth are yet ready for this step. End quote. Surprise! Some 40 years later, not all parts of the earth are yet ready for this step as well. But hey, he didn't just slam the door on it, right? And this is largely the same answer being given by GC leaders today. Okay, let's move on to divorce. Divorce rates began to rise after World War II. In fact, just after World War II, the, the, according to one chart, divorce in America has never been higher than it was in 1946, ever. Not before, not after. You can kind of imagine why, right? Some soldiers have been gone for a few years. Uh, their spouses or significant others took up jobs, often jobs that those men vacated when they joined the war. And when you return... Who knows what you're going to find? Maybe you just grew apart during that time. Maybe the, the significant other you left at home found somebody else. Um, maybe the woman in the factory found that she likes working for a living and doesn't want to be married now. Whatever. Okay, this was, a, this was the high. And it reached a stable low in the late 1950s before peaking again in 1972. So it's natural that the early 70s, if divorce again peaked in 1972... It's natural that that's when Adventists would form a committee to talk about divorce. In a hypothetical scenario put to nearly 400 ministers in one of the church's unions, uh, there was a Mr. Brown who fell in love with a younger single Adventist, and he, so he divorces his wife in order to marry her. Again, it's a hypothetical situation that was put to pastors to see what they would do. 95% of the pastors understandably said that he should be disfellowshipped. 72% said his second marriage should be considered living in adultery. But when asked whether Mr. Brown should then divorce his second wife and attempt to reconcile with his first wife, the pastors were split. 43% said he should divorce his second wife. 42% said he shouldn't which is really confusing because basically 7 out of 10 pastors say that his second marriage is committing adultery, but 4 out of 10 pastors say he should stay married to her. So just keep committing adultery then? The context here was another of these study documents to emerge from the GC during these days, this one on divorce and remarriage. Neil Wilson was again chairman of the Divorce and Remarriage Committee. There was also a Theology of Divorce Committee appointed. Divorce was one of those deeply personal topics that otherwise, as I mentioned, that otherwise good Adventists might quietly differ from the church on. Not because they had a low view of marriage, but because, ah, man, life tends to trump theological theory. One woman wrote of how difficult it was not to remarry. Quote, sometimes the very walls would seem to cry out, you're alone, you're alone, end quote. And that certainly is a difficult place to be in. Nevertheless, the church was not going to soften its view on marriage or of the brokenness of divorce. It was tethered to a whole host of cultural issues, and to soften on divorce seemed like lowering one's view of marriage, of the marriage commitment, giving in to cultural pressures to be more lenient towards divorcees. See? You gotta maintain that wall. Moving on to the topic of music. This has been a hot-button issue in the Adventist church until, I don't know, maybe the last 10 or 15 years. It's really kind of died down. 
The so-called worship wars were ramping up in the 1970s. In fact, there was a conspiracy theorist, I would love to tell you about him sometime, who preyed upon conservative Christian fears by claiming that in his past life as a witch, he started the whole conservative Christian music movement. Yep, just wrote one check, kicked it off. The whole modern worship music was just a conspiracy to tempt Christians. <laughs> now, the Adventist church in the early 1970s didn't go that far, of course. Music used in Adventist worship should meet criteria, 10 criteria, like 10 commandments. It should bring glory to God, be uplifting towards God, influence Christians to be like Jesus, have lyrics that are in harmony with the Bible and the teachings of the church, not be theatrical, not have music that overwhelms the text. Now, that's not all 10, but you get the idea. The statement went on to cover everything from rhythm to amplification, to amplification, that's the word, to how the singer should be dressed. Okay, so maybe nobody at the GC was listening to the Beatles. Now, there's so much more we could say about all of these subjects. We could talk about television and education, especially one of the best articles I've ever read about Adventist uh, education reform. It was, it was, sometimes you, you find these articles written decades and decades and decades ago that you're like, this could have been written yesterday. It was a, it was a wonderful campaign against standardized testing, about getting parents involved in education, about what a letter grade says and doesn't say about a student. All, I mean, just a lot of amazing thoughts. One, one person reacted to that article and said that was, this was the best article written in an Adventist publication in 50 years, I think is how they put it. And I would agree. Fantastic article. Didn't have time to talk about it. Maybe someday we'll, we'll talk about it. But we could talk about the Adventist New England Youth Ensemble that played at the 1975 GC session before traveling all through communist Poland with a little bit of musical diplomacy. In Poland, they even played for U.S. President Gerald Ford, who, had, who came to the back room, their green room, I guess, to thank them personally. What an awesome experience. Didn't have time to talk about that. Whew. Oh, so these are some of the threads we could pick up maybe in future episodes. But I wanted us to take a brief walk by the wall to examine a few of these issues in this episode. Again, the novelty wasn't that Pearson and company invented the Adventist position on most of these issues. It was that Pearson and company linked these issues together. Kind of an Article 5 of NATO, since the, uh, the war with Ukraine is being talked about these days. An attack on one is an attack on all. Sure, people pointed out hypocrisies, great and small, right? How you guys get after us for wearing wedding rings, but I see so-and-so with a Cadillac kind of a deal. And that's been pointed out for decades and decades and decades. Every generation points that stuff out. Sure, not all Adventists understood these issues as of equal value, and sometimes they dissented from them. But one person said, quote, I'd rather see our young women wear jewelry than those awful short skirts. This whole thing is badly out of proportion, end quote. She wanted to see the topic of dress emphasize more than jewelry. But no matter the quibbles, no matter the dissension, no matter the criticisms, great and small, the wall stood. It stood because most Adventists believed, I think, as J.L. Schuler did when he wrote, quote, unless a convert is convinced that being a Seventh-day Adventist is an entirely separate, sanctified way of life that affects his eating, drinking, dressing, reading, music, talking, tithing, giving, thinking, and the places he goes, he has not arrived at being a real Adventist, end quote. There is this idea that Adventism is not this side thing you do, 
but it influences, it directs, it corrects every aspect of your life. It needs to shape everything. You can't just be an avenus and eat a certain way and drink a certain way and read a certain way, but then dress how you please. Adventism has this, this whole claim on every aspect of your life. Every aspect of your life should be brought in harmony with Seventh-day Adventist Christianity. Right? This was the mindset, right? This is the wall. All of these issues are linked. You can't just do your own thing on one or two of them and, and do the Adventist thing on the rest of them. You're either a complete Adventist, where every area of your life is, is sanctified in this way, as he puts it, or you're not an Adventist. That's it. It's all or nothing. You're either on the inside of the wall or you're on the outside of the wall. And so the wall stood to keep the church safe. The GC session was a pageant, as GC sessions are, designed to showcase unity around this wall. Official publications printed excerpts from the innumerable church committee reports in these days that served to fortify their portion of the wall, the jewelry portion of the wall, the music portion of the wall. The wall stood, and no sooner had it been built, of course, than the first cracks began to appear. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk again next time. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Avenus History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>